Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to A Killer Podcast. My name's Freya Millard. And I'm Amy Woodcock, and we are your hosts. Woo! Congratulations to me and you for returning for a seventh episode. Honestly, we are amazing. I'm not gonna lie. Just a big pat on the back for that <laughs> one. Good job, us. You get a gold star. I get a gold star. Ah, uh, amazing. And um, I think that's it then. I think after this one, we'll just cut it, cut it off again for another year, I think. Yeah. Uh, let's see what um, the listeners think, yeah? <laughs> we'll give them a chance to tell us if they want more. <laughs> you know, we just need to feel needed. That's the truth. Obviously. <laughs> yes. That's why we leave it for so long. Yeah. Because we want you to want us. That's it. <laughs> and obviously, we're, we're not that want-worthy. Want I don't know if that's so it. <laughs> Uh, it's just it's fine i'm not hurt at all no my feelings are fine fine <laughs> uh yes episode seven of the historic crime season i am very excited it's coming to an end after this amy's got two more episodes that'll take about three years and then i've got one more so that'll be another four or five years so <laughs> eventually we'll get to the end bear with us <laughs> And then we might start a different season at some point. You never know. You never know. And then that's another 20-year commitment. Yeah. It is hard. It's hard being us. It's tough. Um, yeah, this episode is my episode. So Amy did the last episode. If you haven't listened to that, very naughty. Go back. Go back. That's always the rule here. Yes. That one was all about a guy named Lucky. Yeah. It's like the Britney song. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but it was like less heartwarming than that song, I think. If you could call that song heartwarming. But I was going to say, I wouldn't say that song's very heartwarming either, to be honest. No. Lucky, the dude we're talking about in the last episode, is um, a bit of a villain. And I'm I'm not going to say any more because you should go listen. But everyone we talk about is a villain, to be fair. They haven't got much options. You have a good point there. That is a strong point. (laughs) There isn't much choice here. (laughs) Sometimes as a hero, not often. I gotta say, this episode feels like another... mm, There isn't any villains in this, I'm gonna say, confidently. Unless you call Mother Nature a villain, but we'll get into that. (laughs) I mean, I probably would say yes, that she is. Yeah, she can be. She definitely can be. So let me share with you what story we're doing. The key theme for this week's episode was cannibalism, as we cheered for... (laughs) Uh, we did not cheer. What are you talking about? We would never. Never. We would <laughs> never cheer for cannibalism. <laughs> Let's make sure we edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the story I've picked with the historic cannibalism theme is the Franklin Expedition. Do you know it, Amy? Mm, I don't think so. Maybe if, when you start telling, maybe, but yeah. I, can't, I don't think so. I didn't know it, but I am a hermit, as we've discovered last episode. And for the last year, I mean, you live <laughs> under a rock for half the year. so That is true. We don't get out often. No, so I don't know if this is a real common, especially for like British people. It's a British story in oh, essence. Okay. But then also with a bit of a crossover to Canada and the Arctic regions kind of thing. So yeah. I feel like it's quite a global story. Mm. 
Hmm. And there's been some recent developments on it. I'm excited. I'm hoping I'm hoping I don't know it because that's that's always better, isn't it? It's fun to learn, isn't it, guys? <laughs> Let's learn about cannibals. Yay. Oh, I need to stop yaying. <laughs> yaying is so contagious. <laughs> I just can't help it. <laughs> I just want to eat. <laughs> okay, well then let's get into this, guys. Let's get into it. So, to set the scene of the world way back when, I'm going to give you some context. Since the 15th century, European explorers were keen on finding a western shortcut to Asia through the sea. This fabled northwest passage was one of the final mysteries of the world at the time and was frustratingly a big question mark that everyone wanted to find the answer to. Even the infamous Christopher Columbus was keen to find a viable Northwest Passage to trade, and I say trade with like air quotation marks, <laughs> but I mean, we all know what Chris was like, so. Yeah, we know what you get up to. Yeah. So by the time the 1800s rolled around, which is when our story takes place, there have been many, many attempts to locate a Northwest Passage from the likes of Portugal, Spain, and of course, Great Britain. Oh, ha ha ha, yes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> You see, every colonizer wanted to be the one to locate the mythical quick access route to the fruitful lands in the east. But every route taken was met by sea block, whether that was a coastal land, ice, or just unmanageable waters. Oh, damn. Oh, damn. How unfortunate. Poor colonizers. Sad, sad times. <laughs> Everyone shed a tear on cue. Go. <laughs> Is your tear flowing? Is it flowing? I can feel it. <laughs> All these journeys were not wasted. Even though they were unsuccessful in achieving their overall goal, there was still vast knowledge to be gained. With every new trip came new insights into the geography of our big old world, and this was essential details for clearing up the mystery of what lies above Canada. You see, the higher up each expedition went, the closer they got to a little place called the Arctic. And as a result, this cold paradise of polar bears, beluga whales, and narwhals. I love a narwhal. Every time I say narwhals, I think of narwhals. Elf. Yeah. (laughs) Bye, buddy. That's it. (laughs) This place became the next Hail Mary route all the way to Asia. However, by the 1800s, the overall consensus in the Voyager community was that there were no viable Northwest passages between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans due to the unmovable ice. Oh no. Sad times. More tears, please. (laughs) Even with all the naysayers, some adventurers still dreamed a dream of finding the Arctic gold mine. In the 1800s, a man named Sir John Barrow, who was the second secretary of the Admiralty, which was the British government department that commanded the Royal Navy at the time, he decided that he wanted to push the Royal Navy to continue their search for the almighty Northwest Passage, despite all this, you know, concrete people being like, nah, it's not happening. He's like, damn straight it will. I won't make it. Yeah, there's nothing quite like the confidence of a a rich white man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, yes. (laughs) I will make a passage. (laughs) So he organised several big expeditions to go find Santa in the North Pole. Yay! I want to be a part. (laughs) I thought you'd like that. I want to be there. Oh, oh, you don't. Trust me. (laughs) Hmm, Amy, do you think we'd be telling this story if it was a good ending on a bit of podcast? (laughs) So it's it's not that they find Santa and happy ending? Turn off now if you want that to be the ending, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Can I turn off now? No, you have to stay. Damn it. Get here, get back here. (laughs) So yeah, what followed after this was another four decades of attempts to make the passage a reality, some of which was led by an explorer called John Franklin. So John Franklin, he was a spirited sailor who had wanted to pursue a life at sea ever since he was a young boy. His father wasn't so keen on the idea though, but he reluctantly allowed John at the age of 12 to go on a trial voyage on board a merchant ship. And this experience only deepened his desire for adventure. In March 1800, John gained his first Royal Navy appointment and he never looked back. Then, in 1819, John experienced his first trip to the Canadian Arctic region. He was chosen to lead the copper mine expedition, which travelled overland from the Hudson Bay in Canada to the very north coast near the mouth of Coppermine River, which Google tells me is a mere 1,053 miles or 1,695 kilometres, if that's your thing. Oh, that's quite far, isn't it? That's not a small trip. miles. I don't understand kilometres. I'm not going to lie. No, me neither. I'm not sure I understand miles (laughs) either, so none of that's my thing. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I just try and think, like, how many miles does it take me to get to work? Okay. And then try and think of that over and over and over and over again until I get to 1,000. That would be a long, long old journey. And by foot? Yeah. Oh, God, no. Yeah, no thanks. In the ice, in the freezing Arctic weather. Yeah, I think I'd stay at home, to be honest. Some people like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I didn't think this would (laughs) sell it for you. So the point of this mission was to map the Northwest Passage via land, and it was the first of three Arctic missions that John would be chosen to lead. Unfortunately, though, things went a bit pear-shaped on that expedition. Oh, no. 
Many believe that this was due to factors like unreliable aids, bad weather, and some poor planning on John's part. The unexpected harsh weather meant the crew did not have access to the supply lines that they needed, and they were faced with starvation. John was made aware that they would be under-resourced by locals beforehand, but he was firm in his decision not to move away from the original plan. Of course. I can defy Mother Nature. Like, I can do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Ice? That's nothing. Sheer willpower will get me through. Yeah. Like, no, Johnny, that's not how that works. So, of course, this was a huge point of contention with the locals from the Hudson Bay settlement, who then blamed John's leadership for what happened next. At about 500 miles, 800 kilometres, into the journey, they were forced to turn back due to the lack of supplies and heavy winter setting in. Oh, God. I would be so mad. I know. <laughs> You'd make it 500 miles and you got to turn back. I would be livid. Like, you walked out there for nothing. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Oh, I would be so angry. <laughs> I know. Thought it out, John. Oh, God. Always the Johns here. Honestly. <laughs> Things only got more desperate as they retreated across some uncharted territory. Sadly, 11 out of the 22 men on the expedition died, while those who survived only did so because they were rescued by indigenous Canadians, known as Yellow Knives Nation. Oh, that's that's just not a good expedition, is it? It didn't go well. Half your men gone. Because you're an idiot. So, when they returned home, accusations of murder and cannibalism followed them. However, there was no evidence to support these claims. The one rumour that was true, though, was that in the desperate state the men reached, John resorted to eating his own leather boots to survive. Nice. And so he was known from then on as the man who ate his boots. <laughs> oh, God. That couldn't have been nice. No. Especially, you walk 500 miles in those boots and then you got to eat them. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> I think I'd rather eat my friends. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, no. Damn. Oh. I'm scared. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> Never put me on an expedition with you, please. Oh, God, you wouldn't have me walking 500 miles in the ice. <laughs> that never happened. Me neither. Jesus, no. <laughs> oh. So, uh, <laughs> moving past that <laughs> swift threat on everyone's lies, uh, anyone who wants to go adventure with Amy, be wary. They're all going to be lining up now. Oh, yeah. Taking requests. Come on, bring them in. <laughs> so, despite this nickname and the deaths under his leadership, John was still a respected Navy hero and he was chosen to lead a second Arctic expedition in 1825 to locate the Northwest Passage again. Although unsuccessful, he didn't reach such desperation this time around, and when he returned, life only got better and better for John. Oh, good. But, of course, that's until it didn't, because, you know, we're talking about him. Um... In 1828, he married his second wife, Jane, who had been known as Lady Jane Franklin, and John himself was knighted by George IV the following year and awarded a gold medal by the world's oldest geography society before being made Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land in 1937, which is modern-day Tasmania. He he had it going for him, didn't he? Oh, not too shabby, John. Yeah. I mean, had he actually really done anything at that point that amazing? Like, I guess leading, like, you are risking your life doing these expeditions, so there is... Uh, I guess. He hasn't actually found anything uh, yet. Says the people that don't <laughs> want to walk 500 miles. <laughs> oh, fine. I guess you're doing something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't agree, but, uh, you know, whatever. Each to their own. <laughs> <laughs> So there was a little bit of controversy surrounding John and Lady Jane in their time in Tasmania, and he was removed from office in 1843. And I don't really want to get into the details of that because it's like a side story, but basically he wasn't beloved by the locals and his wife was rumoured to have done some weird shady things. Like she had prisoners carrying her around on a wooden seat, which sounds more like your thing. (laughs) And John (laughs) Eve. I wouldn't have prisoners do it. You know, I'd, I'd ask for volunteers. Yeah, yeah, of course. You're, you're not that bad. Yeah. You're not that bad. No. It's a choice. So, good on you. <laughs> so John even offered to reduce their sentences for being human cars, which is very odd rich people shit. Like, the whole thing is just... What? <laughs> what? Like, hello, did you murder someone? Oh, okay. Well, if you carry my wife around the island, that'd be great. And then you can go home. That is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, when the couple returned back to England, their reputations were a little smeared by all this, and it is believed that this is why John, with lots of encouragement from Lady Jane, wanted to go back into leading expeditions, so that he could restore himself back to those former glory days. By the time 1845 rolled around, the Royal Navy was feeling pretty good about their chances of finally finding that Northwest Passage, thanks to all the expeditions they had been funding over the last four decades. They had managed to narrow down on where they believed the Phantom Northwest Passage to be. 
All that remained was about 1,040 miles of uncharted waters left to navigate, which seemed pretty doable in one last expedition. But of course, picking the right person to lead this mission was essential. Yeah. And this is where today's story truly begins. As we now know, the unfortunate soul that was more than keen to lead this exciting discovery was indeed John Franklin. Of course. But funnily enough though, at the ripe age of 59, John was not exactly the Admiralty's first choice. In fact, he wasn't even their second, third, fourth or fifth choice. Oh no. Poor John, I bet he was feeling pretty shit after that. Yeah, but he had something to prove, didn't he? Yeah. And he was adamant. So despite the rejection, that didn't stop John, and he pled his case well enough that he got the job above all those preferred choices. One of which was Francis Croyser, a humble Irishman with an impressive Arctic expedition record too. But even though Francis missed out on the top spot, he was still invited on this doomed trip, having been made the commander of the second ship called HMS Terror, while John himself was the captain of HMS Erebus. Lovely optimistic names for the ships. I mean, HMS Terror. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be on that. I'm not going to lie. Well, you don't want to be on Erebus either, because in Latin it means darkness. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, no. That's not really giving high hopes, is it? <laughs> it's not like, this is going to be a beautiful trip where we find Santa. <laughs> it's not giving that vibe. No, it's not giving that vibe at all. So to set the scene, the preparation for this victory mission was unlike anything that had come before. The ships, Erebus and Terra, were state-of-the-art warships with every advancement available added to them. This included steam engines to warm the ships and help run the propellers, plus reinforced sides to help protect the ship from iceberg damage. Mm. At the time, the expedition was also the best stocked expedition in history thanks to the recent development of canned foods. The Admiralty ensured that both ships were suitably stocked to sustain the crew for three to five years. Damn. Even though they expected the trip to only take two, maybe three max. Oh my god. <laughs> Imagine being like, oh, I'm going on a job. Um, I'll see you in two to three years. What? <laughs> I know. It's not a small feat, is it? No. And you're like 59 years old. So yeah, it's like a good few years of your life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. In retrospect, what we know now is that these advancements may have actually worked against them in the end. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. The big warships were not ideal for crossing the ice block pass of the Arctic because they were slow, they were heavy, more difficult to steer. They were prone to getting locked in the ice. And then all that canned food, that wasn't as great as you might think either. Why isn't the canned foods good? <laughs> you see, yeah, it was sufficient to live on if they had been properly sealed and not with the substance that literally was poisoning the sailors. <laughs> Classic story here. The Admiralty made the decision to buy from the lowest price supplier and I guess that's what they got. Oh, shit. <laughs> so not only did the food go off too quickly, but more recent testing discovered that the men on the expedition had experienced lead poisoning, which was the same as the lead found around the seal of the cans. Oh, dear. That's not good at all, is it? <laughs> and it wasn't like they could just nip to the shops to grab any more. So <laughs> They didn't have any, basically. Yeah. It's not a small thing to mess up, this. No. Ultimately, I guess you could say this was like the Titanic of expeditions. Everyone firmly believed that there was only success on the horizons because of how glorious everything looked from the outside. But did anyone count the lifeboats? Never. Metaphorically in this case, because, you know, real lifeboats wouldn't have helped either. <laughs> but no, kind of needed some food. Yeah. And did anyone check the canned food? No. <laughs> nope. And so, on the 19th of May, 1845, the team set sail from the town of Grinneth in Kent with a crew of 24 officers and 110 men. Little did they know that most of them would never set foot on English soil again. Oh, damn. The first pit stop on the way to the North Pole was Stromness in the Orkney Islands in Scotland. From there, they sailed to Greenland, which took about 30 days, and they arrived in Disco Bay on the west coast of Greenland, where they picked up some snacks for the road in the form of 10 oxen. <laughs> Lovely. I love a little quick snack on the road. <laughs> Give me some oxen. <laughs> Just a little snack. <laughs> Different times. I was thinking more of like, you know, Pringles and... <laughs> yeah, they didn't have that in Greenland for some reason. <laughs> 1845. How dare they not have Pringles? Joke. At this point, the whole crew had their last chance to communicate with their loved ones back home, and some even wrote letters moaning about the fact that John Franklin had strict rules around swearing and getting drunk, <laughs> while also noting what good spirits John was in, even stating that he seemed 10 years younger, which probably would have helped. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> On board the ship, there was a lot of morale-boosting activities for the men, so some were taught to read and write, while there were also like costumes for plays and sports and Aww. game stuff. 
that's cute keep them from going stir crazy basically was the plan yeah so you know even back in the 1800s they really cared about health and well-being that's good <laughs> yeah sweet i mean obviously it doesn't seem it's not going to have helped any of them in the long run i guess but <laughs> yeah but you know a nice play might have picked your spirits up when you're stranded somewhere in the arctic you never know <laughs> yeah probably you know just a little something to take your mind off it yeah it was at this point in Greenland that the journey ended for five very lucky men when they were sent back home due to sickness. So this means that there was now only 129 men left to continue towards the Arctic. Only. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, those five men, I imagine they lived out the rest of their lives like so thankful. Yeah. What a lucky escape. The last official sighting of the ships, Terra and Erebus, was by a couple of whaler ships. One, ironically named the Prince of Wales. <laughs> <I've always studied>. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and this was in Baffin Bay, an island to the west of Greenland, in the late July of 1845. They reported that the crew were waiting for some better travel conditions before crossing the Canadian Channel, called Lancaster Sound, which was the expected route, so nothing seemed amiss at this point. All smooth sailing, kind of, so far. <laughs> I like it. Smooth sailing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, no one was questioning anything at first, and it wasn't until a few years of radio silence went by that people started to wonder where the Franklin Expedition crew had ended up, and how come no one had heard from them in all that time. That's crazy couple of years and they're like maybe we should actually start worrying about them <laughs> yeah but then you think about it they've gone to the arctic in an unknown region in an unknown area this is the life of a voyager yeah a couple of years i'll be back hun see you later Dang. <laughs> yeah and then they're actually like looking at her calendar like yeah it's been a good few years mm -hmm. now i wonder if he's coming back soon whereas nowadays it's like a couple of hours you're like oh what's going on where are they you're like why are, where's my text yeah where's my message come on yeah crazy so this uh, this whole thing at the time very quickly became a big mystery. And even today, there are still so many questions that have not been answered about how exactly the expedition unfolded and led to such a disastrous ending. It's somewhat of a puzzle that has taken over 150 years to kind of put back together. But this is what we do know. Let's go. What happened, guys? What the hell? I'm ready. So we know now that after reaching the Lancaster Sound, the crew spent the first winter of 1845 on Beachy Island, which sounds quite dreamy and warm, but I can assure you it is absolutely the opposite. Oh. Obviously, it's in the Arctic. What? <laughs> Where's the sunshine? The irony of calling it beachy. Yeah, that is weird. Spending at least one winter staying put in the Arctic was always the plan. However, what they didn't plan for was the increasingly cold weather, which forced them to spend a lot longer there due to the ice lock. Thanks to modern science, we now know exactly why the expedition was well and truly doomed from the start. Oh no. And the answer is Mother Nature, bitches. Yeah, man. She gonna have you. You see, the ice samples from the Arctic can track the weather throughout the years. And scientists more recently found that during the 1840s, the Arctic was experiencing an unusually cold patch, which meant the winters were way harsher than anyone could have expected. And not only that, the extreme cold spells lasted for the next decade, completely hindering the Franklin crew's chances of survival and the following rescue missions to come. So they really had no hope. It's just no hope. Basically doomed them. Yeah, they couldn't have done anything to change it. Mm -mm -mm. So back at Beachy Island, the crew were none the wiser of all this. And sadly, this is where they experienced their first loss of life. Three crew members died on the island during this time, and they were subsequently buried there too. John Torrington and John Hartnell died in January 1846, and then William Blaine died in April of the same year. Uh, here's a fun fact, kind of. I mean, it feels a bit dark, but... <laughs> fun fact. <laughs> in the 1980s, the bodies were exhumed, and they were found to be perfectly intact, like they were mummified from the cold. Mm. The autopsies that they performed, they determined that lung disease and lead poisoning were the probable causes of their death. So it was all there waiting for them to find out. Yeah. So then, in the summer of 1946, both ships took the opportunity that came with the warmer weather and they started moving again, this time down the Peel Channel. It was at this point, though, that things really took a turn for the worse. And this made the winter on Beachy Island actually feel like a paradise. <laughs> the route was unexpectedly icy. And so in September 1846, the ships get trapped in pack ice near a place called King William Island. 
And this is sadly where their journey sailing the ships would end. Oh no, they just got completely stuck there. Completely stuck. So pack ice is like, everything freezes over to the point you basically become part of a land of ice. Oh god, okay. If your ship gets frozen into that pack ice, it ain't going anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, your ship could literally get crushed in any second because the ice is pressurising all around you. Yeah. In whatever direction that the sea's moving in, it'll just take you. You cannot get out of that. Oh no, that's that's not good. Yeah. (laughs) So when I say they were stuck, I mean like they were real stuck. What was that canal thing that happened like two years ago? <laughs> you know, that was stuck, but that was funny. <laughs> but this is like seriously like you ain't getting anywhere until a whole land of ice just defrosts. That's your only hope. And in that time, you've got to hope that your ship doesn't get crushed or sinks. Yeah, not not much hope there. So yeah, the men had to accept the fact that they would have to spend another winter with no progress. And of course, I bet they were hoping that that would be it. But unfortunately, no, it was not. Oh no. So at the time, back home in Britain, alarm bells were starting to ring in January 1947. So that was about four months after the Franklin's crew got stuck near King William's Island. But obviously, no one knows this. They don't know what's going on with each other. Yeah. And at this point, it's coming up to two years since they departed. Leading the concerns was John's wife, Lady Jane. In her mind, she knew that if something was already wrong, then the clock to save her husband and his men was already ticking fast because of the delay. Yeah. you got to get there too. Oh God, yeah, of course. <laughs> then you got to find them. If there's anything to find. It's not like a quick pick up down the road in the next town over. You know, pulling together a rescue mission for the <laughs> Arctic is no small feat. And it would take time and time that she felt that the men on board the Franklin expedition didn't have because any day they could freeze. On the other hand, the Admiralty were not worried at all. They dismissed her worries and they said that they had the unlimited confidence in the skills and resources of Sir John Franklin. It's not just up to him though. <laughs> yeah, and also, you can't fight the weather. Yeah, like you don't, they don't know what's there. That's the whole point. Like, they don't know what could possibly be happening. No, they're like, he's fine. He's, he's got another few years of our lovely canned food that we've provided. He'll be fine. Yeah. But the thing about Lady Jane is she didn't like to take no for an answer and she decided to appeal to the public and every high-class citizen she knew to put pressure on the Admiralty to take action. Eventually, this worked. She's like, I want to find my man. Yeah. But sadly, it would be too late for John by the time they launched their first rescue mission in the winter of 1847. So that's like a year after they started getting worried before they could even get out there. Oh god, yeah. Little did she or anyone else in Britain know that John Franklin was already dead, having died on the 11th of June, 1847. Yeah, just a bit late. Just a little bit late. Yeah. Sadly for Lady Franklin, that information was not to be revealed until the discovery of a document called the Victory Point Note in May 1959. That was by a search mission 13 years after John's death. Oh God. All that time she had hoped he might still come home. Yeah, waiting all that time, not knowing what's happened to him. Yeah. You've got like the story of what's happening in the Arctic and then the story of what people know back at home. Yeah. Now that we are obviously 177 years in the future, we can see the both side by side and how it was playing out and unfolding. But back then it was just complete mystery. They just didn't know. Interestingly, to this day, Victory Point Note is the only direct communication from the Franklin Expedition crew that has ever been discovered, as no one from the expedition ever made it home. What was that, like 129 people, was it? Yeah. That's crazy. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Damn. So this note, it was found in a con. I hope I said that right. It's basically a giant stack of rocks, and it was split into two parts, the note was. So the first part was written like, as you would expect, in the centre of the piece of paper, while the second was like scribbled around the margins, okay. showing that it had been removed and then added to and then put back at a later date. Uh, okay. The first part, dated the 28th of May, 1847, shared how they had to winter in Beachy Island for longer than expected, Yeah. but that all was well and that John Franklin was still commanding the expedition. Then, around the outside of the note, which is the additional scribble part, had been written and signed on the 25th of April, 1848, so like a year later. And this is the part of the note that revealed that John Franklin, along with 23 other men, had died. Oh. The interesting thing is that those deaths are really the only ones that we can account for for certain. Yeah. Obviously, the ones on Beachy Island, there have been graves found since, but in terms of the masses of the men overall, it's still a mystery. There's no actual, like, information of where where they died, what happened. No. This note is... the only direct communication. The note also, it didn't give any explanation of what caused their deaths, and we still don't know. So we can only like speculate, you know, it might have been old age, disease. Yeah. Could be a load of different things. 
could have been what's it called when they turn on the captain what's it called uh mutiny yeah mutiny when they're like no you're terrible we want to get rid of you yeah murder cannibalism who knows who knows the remaining 105 crew members were now being commanded by francis Kreuzer. if you recall this was the captain of hms terror along with james fitzjames who was the second in command on board of HMS Erebus. So that was John's ship. Yeah. But of course, following John's death, he was now the ship's captain. So it's technically now the captains of both those ships were in charge. Yeah. Ironically, I think they were both higher up on the list of potential commanders for the whole expedition <laughs> than John Franklin anyway. So Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's like they got their job eventually. <laughs> probably at a point where they didn't want it. No, when they're thinking, do you know what? I should have stayed at home. Yeah. The note shared that the remaining crew were planning to abandon the ships the next day on the 26th of April and then make their way towards Backfish River in Canada to link to the mainland where there were already some settlements. This means that at the same time the search party were en route trying to find them at sea, the crew were setting off on a disastrous land journey that would claim all the remaining lives. That would be a very difficult journey to try and make to get back. Yes. If they'd made it to that point on ship, yeah. It's going to be hard to get back on foot. It is not a small journey. I can't emphasize enough how big the Arctic <laughs> is. Like, this, you know, pinpointing someone in complete white. Yeah. Ice is white. The sky is white. It's just unimaginable. You can't even look into the distance to be like, hello, is anyone there? Yeah. No. It's just nothing but ice. Oh, chaos. Ultimately, though, it wouldn't have really mattered if the men had stayed on board of the ship because that search mission was the first of many failed search parties. I said it's going to be hard to find them in all that that space. <laughs> it is. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack that also keeps moving because the pack ice is like, you know, drifting the ships away. And, oh, yes. And you can't get to them because you've got to go through pack ice to get to them, which you can't do. So it's just really doomed from the beginning, wasn't it? <laughs> Very aptly named. <laughs> yeah. For a while, things were pretty bleak and no one knew anything about what had actually happened until the first breakthrough, and that was in August 1850, so five years after they left their homeland. Mm, so a while. Could you imagine if this was in our time now, like just five years of no answers, no information, no sightings, no communication. Just no clue. Us in the true crime community would eat this up. Oh yeah, definitely. But like, I'd be following every second. What is going on? Yeah, and that was what it was like. It was like one of the biggest stories yeah. of the time. Like You just think like with there being so many people on that expedition, like how many families there were waiting for an answer. Yeah, devastating. And five years is not a small amount of time to be no. waiting. And really, sadly, they just really don't get the answers they deserved. No. In 1850, this is when they found traces of the encampment on Beachy Island, along with the graves of the three men who died there. For many, this was a moment of relief to finally have some reassurance of the expedition's route. Yeah. And there was hope from others that more revelations would closely follow. But sadly, it just wasn't the case. Yeah, I suppose it would have been like that hope of like, oh, okay, we finally tracked sort of where they've been. Maybe we'll see where they went after. Yeah. You're like, I'm on the back of their trail now. We're going to get them. We're going to find them. Mm. I just can't highlight enough how incredibly hard it is to find anything in the Arctic, even two huge warships and hundreds of men. Like, that sounds achievable, but it really isn't. No. <laughs> the terrain is like unbearable to cover. You can actually get like eye blisters from the ice. Yeah. Eye blisters. I don't want eye blisters. No, no. (laughs) And it's like vast and endless. And it really does like earn its name as the great white nothing. Because it just is. Yeah. You can understand why a simple rescue mission is just like completely out of the question. Yeah. God damn. So despite their best efforts here, there was no luck in locating the missing ships. And it was at this point that real concern started to mount for the safety of those on board. (laughs) Only just. I mean, I think they were concerned, (laughs) but... It was really like, this is bad, bad. Now, like, I don't think that anyone survived kind of level. Yeah. Lady Franklin herself became somewhat of a symbol of hope and resilience in the country, as she did all in her power to keep the interest alive in finding her husband. The newfound attention for the crew's welfare was an added advantage for the search party, and many other explorers wanted to join in from all different nations, especially because of the Admiralty's reward of £20,000. Money always gets the world going, doesn't it? (laughs) In 1852, an explorer named Edward Belcher commanded another government-funded expedition to search for John Franklin and his crew, but it went tits up pretty quickly thanks to Edward's unlikable personality among the crew. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for Christ's sake. So it's not even the ice this time. (laughs) 
It's just they hate him. That's terrible. Four of the five search ships got trapped in drift ice, which led the crew to abandon them. Uh, And a very interesting little tidbit of information for our American listeners out there. Uh, One of the ships that were abandoned, called HMS Resolute, was later recovered. And the timber from the ship was then used to manufacture some desks instead. Because they were like, what do we do with a sunken ship? Make some desks. Makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) At the time, Queen Victoria bestowed the Resolute desk to the President of the United States and it found a new home in the Oval Office. So is it still there now? So I think some presidents have chosen to use it and others haven't, but it's like an optional desk. That's nice though. Fancy little desk. Yeah. Made from an abandoned ship. Yeah, it's a good story, isn't it? Yeah. A bit of an icebreaker. Oh, pun. (laughs) (laughs) That was terrible. That was probably one of my worst puns I've ever done. I'm quite proud though. (laughs) So thanks to the ice locked seas ruining everything, rescuers decide to turn their attention to the other vast space that they think John Franklin and his crew could be. And that is the Arctic and Canadian landmass. And it's a good thing they did because this is where the next breakthrough happened. Which remember, no one knew that they had abandoned the ships at this point because the note was still unrecovered. So it was just a hunch that they were like, let's check the land. Let's see if they made their way on foot. Yeah. The men responsible for the next development were called Sir John Richardson and John Ray. So the two Johns is what I'm going to call them. So So many many Johns. Johns. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time. (laughs) That was cute. Yeah, very cute of us. (laughs) There's always a John in these stories. In any historical story, there's a John somewhere. So many Johns. So yeah, for clarity, I'm going to call these ones Richardson and Ray so we don't get confused of all the Johns. John and John looked for John. (laughs) Yeah, let's not go down that. (laughs) No. So the mission was to trace the coast between the Mackenzie and Coppermine rivers and also explore some of the land territories on the shores of Victoria Island and the Wollaston Palencia. So Ray was a member of the Hudson Bay settlement and he was invited to join the party thanks to his years of experience living in the region and interacting with the Inuit people. He was actually respectful towards them, unlike most colonisers, which made him a valuable asset for the trip because ultimately the Inuit people knew far more than anyone else. Well done, Ray. Gold star for Ray. Yeah, good for having decent respect for others. Well done. Well done for just the you know, slightest human decency. Yeah. You see, part of the reason why it had taken so long to get some answers as to what happened to the Franklin expedition was straight up racism. If the Western world would have sought out and trusted the words of the Inuit people in that initial search period, then they would have had the answers that they were seeking a lot sooner. And who knows, they might have even found more tangible evidence before it became forever lost to the Arctic. Even Lady Franklin was more convinced by listening to mediums and psychics to locate her husband than the damn people who live, thrive and know the land like no other. And not only that, they had first-hand interactions with the Franklin men and they were willing to share them with searchers, but not many people were willing to listen. Such idiots. Like, you think that would be the first thing you would do, is like talk to the people who live there. Right? That's too simple. Now let's go to a psychic. (laughs) So right now, I'm going to tell you what happened to the Franklin expedition according to the best source available, whose accounts of what happened have led to more substantial discoveries than anything else. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. In the winter of 1946, so before John Franklin died in the June of 1947, Inuit testimony records say that they witnessed Terra get heaved onto her beam end, which means her side, by pack ice. As a result, all the crew had to quite literally... Jump ship and spend the rest of winter together on Erebus. Ah, cuddling. (laughs) That one I wrote in. That one was purposeful. (laughs) You're like, I was ready for that one. (laughs) I'm not sorry. I'm not. I'm I'm not. (laughs) Then in the following winter of 1947, Inuit said that the dead men had been placed in the ship Terror, which was abandoned at the time. On April 26th, Inuits witnessed the men abandon both ships, just like Francis said they were going to do on the Victory Point night. Not long after the remaining 105 men tried their luck on land, things must not have panned out as some men ended up venturing back towards the ship. And Inuit said that they witnessed the men back on board Erebus in the spring of 1849. At this point, the group really began to split up though and they became divided by strength and health. And if we've learned anything from Scooby-Doo, we all know that splitting up is a bad idea. (laughs) It's a terrible idea. I mean, ugh, to be fair though, either way, whichever way they went, there was never going to be a happy ending. So true, it's not, it's not good. Going back to the ships, not going to do anything. Continuing the journey onwards, wasn't going to do anything. There was just no hope. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah, this is a great story. <laughs> this is great. So the men were well out of their initial supplies. They had to hunt birds and seals to survive. But of course, they weren't exactly made for this lifestyle. 
Thankfully for some of the remaining crew, they seemed to build up quite a good relationship with the local Inuits, and this helped their chances of survival for a while. The Inuits even recall going on one successful joint caribou hunt together with some of the men. Aww, that's cute. Sadly, it was during this time that the Inuits report witnessing a military burial for Francis Croizer, and his body has never been found. Oh, a mystery. Mm-hmm. Over the next couple of years, surviving the Arctic lifestyle evidently became more and more difficult for the remaining men. The Inuit people said they sighted a group of about 30 to 40 remaining men who were dragging a boat on the sledge and trying to make their way towards the Arctic-Canadian border, although this was still a substantial distance away. As they passed by, the Inuit sold the men a seal for food and noticed how badly they were doing due to starvation and sickness. Later on, in the same brutal winter, the Inuits came across the men again, near the mouth of Back River, closer to their end destination, but still miles and miles away. However, this time, they were all dead. Oh shit. Oh shit. Still miles away. Yeah, but they got close. They did well. (laughs) Yeah, they tried. All the details of what happened during the gap between the sightings has been taken to the grave with these men. What we know, though, is that the dire situation that the men in the Franklin expedition found themselves in meant they had to resort to something truly inhumane in those last few months to survive. And this is the breakthrough discovery Ray had in 1854 as the first person to speak with Inuit people to find out what they had witnessed. However, no one liked what he found out back then. Oh boy, I think I see where this is going. (laughs) You see? I see. (laughs) To increase their chances of survival, the Inuit said that the dying sailors turned to cannibalism. They discovered this when they found the camp with men lying dead in the snow. Some were out in the open, others were underneath the boat that was being used as shelter, and others were in tents. The most damning evidence was in the pots they found human remains. Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. In addition to the Inuit's account of what happened, they also offered some physical evidence by showing Ray several objects that were positively identified to having belonged to those on the Franklin expedition. This includes silver forks and spoons that were personal belongings of John Franklin himself and the likes of James Fitzjames and Francis Croizer. So that just kind of really like sets it then, doesn't it? Like they definitely did come across them because they have their stuff. So they definitely saw them. Yeah. It's hard to be like, they're lying. Yeah. You know, people will. (laughs) Of course. Ray filed his report with the Admiralty. But when the words of cannibalism got back to Britain, there was an uproar, especially by Lady Jane. Since the Franklin crew went missing, they had been hailed as lost heroes, and these kinds of accusations would truly taint that perception. The thing is, though, like, you can't judge them too harshly. Yeah. Really. I wouldn't think any less of them for it. No, you're talking desperate, desperate situation. Yeah, it's not like they chose to do it for fun. No. (laughs) It was a survival situation. Yeah, and as we know from you, you would eat your friends over your shoes. (laughs) I was in this situation. (laughs) So I can see you having sympathy for them. I do. <laughs> I take nothing back. <laughs> um, in response to Ray's findings, many in positions of authority try to discredit him and his work. And Lady Jane's close friend, Charles Dickens, hey. even penned many reports about these falsehoods and turned to straight up racism to Ugh. deflect the findings by casting stones at the Inuit people who had only sought to tell them what they had witnessed in an effort to help the search. For God's sake, Dickens. I know. Why have you got to be like that for? <laughs> As you can expect, at the time in Britain, these kind of prejudicial accusations travelled far and wide and it was pretty easy to make indigenous people at the enemy. Many tried to perpetuate a false tale of how the Inuit people murdered the Franklin crew and ate them without any evidence to suggest that this was the case. And it was this response to the Inuits that truly hindered the chances of finding resolution at the time. (sighs) Yeah, I'm not even surprised, honestly. (laughs) And if they did, you know, listen to the Inuits, we might know so much more today. Yeah. Regardless of how in denial they were, the findings from Ray did call for another search expedition, and this time down the back river. It was led by Hudson Bay Company employees, James Anderson and James Stewart. So this time, it's the two Jameses. Hi, James. (laughs) (laughs) They travelled north by canoe to the mouth of the Back River, and in July 1955, they also got word from a group of Inuits that they had seen a group of foreigners starving to death along the coast. Before they returned, they found further signs of the Franklin crew on Montreal Island, near where the Back River meets the sea. They came across an inscribed piece of wood which said Erebus and another that had the name Mr. Stanley written on it, who was a medical surgeon on board Erebus. Ooh, the more evidence. You can see that they're starting to get some traction of where the men actually went. Yeah, finally seeing sort of a path. Yet despite the physical evidence and the verbal accounts gathered by Ray and the Jameses, which suggested that they were at least on the right trail, 
the Admiralty decided not to do another search. Instead, they officially labelled the crew deceased in service. But thankfully, the Admiralty wasn't the only one able to send out search parties, and so Lady Franklin even funded some of her own, along with other people who were keen to see the mystery resolved after so many years. Yeah, I mean, you'd want to know, wouldn't you? And you're finally getting close, you're getting signs of them, you're finding bodies, encampments. Yeah, you can't just give up now, just because they don't like what they're hearing, you know? Basically, yeah. In 1859, sled parties were sent out to search King William Island, as enough time had passed without answers that people finally started to consider whether there was some truth to the Inuit's testimony. And guess what? This is where they finally found the only existing bit of direct communication with the Franklin Expedition team, that victory point note. Dun, 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 the note. So, again, proving that they were telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> they also discovered a lifeboat on the western side of the island, which contained two skeletons and lots of abandoned equipment. This change of approach is where the leads started to come in way faster than before, but also still nowhere near fast enough. In the 1860s, a man named Charles Francis Hall decided to join two search expeditions, having had some valuable experience living among the Inuit community previously. He found various camps, graves and relics on the southern coast of King William Island. And in 1869, the local Inuits showed Charles a shallow grave they discovered which contained some very well-preserved skeletal remains and clothing. These remains were actually taken back to England and they are now buried beneath the Franklin Memorial at Greenwich, Old Royal Naval College. Uh, in 2009, the remains were examined and they found and they were found to belong to Harry Goodsir, the assistant surgeon on Erebus. That's crazy. They found who it was in 2009. I love that. Yeah. Oh, there's some real recent discoveries. Yeah. At the time, Charles believed that the whole Franklin crew was likely dead. So he worked with his Inuit guides to gather hundreds of pages of testimony from the Inuit community. Charles's work on collecting this critical testimony is hailed as a major resource in this case, and even though it would be another 100 years until more information came to light, his active search for answers among the Inuit community was significant. Uh, this is a side story, but I wanted to share it because it's funny. Well, not funny. <laughs> I wanted to share it because it's interesting. So, Charles died during a sledding accident while on the first American-sponsored expedition to reach the North Pole. Mm. But before he died, he accused members of his crew, including the lead scientists, of having poisoned him. Ooh. In 1968, they exhumed his body and did indeed find he'd ingested large quantities of arsenic in the last two weeks of his life. Ah. So he was not wrong. So they had poisoned him. Yeah. Shocking. They murdered Charles. How good they? What a joke. Honestly. <laughs> So, as I try to wind down this huge mystery, I guess what's saddest of all is that we now know that 30 to 40 men actually reached the northern coast of Canada's mainland before they met their fate. They got so close. And what's horrifying of all is knowing that for some of those men, that fate was cannibalism. Yeah. And thanks to scientific testing, we know this to be true, not just because of Inuit testimony, but because they exhumed remains showing evidence that correlated with cannibalism. There's proof. Proof. We have the proof. The next big discovery in this puzzling mystery came in September 2014. Damn. After decades, nay centuries, of searching for the missing ships, the big breakthrough finally happened. Oh god, yeah, they just don't, like, hadn't found them at that point. No, eight years ago. Damn. Thanks to guidance and testimony from Inuit people, an expedition led by Parks Canada located HMS Erebus, south of the Victoria Strait, in the area that the Inuit people at the time suggested it would be. God damn it, can they just not listen to them? Can they... Just listen. I know. I keep coming back to this point because I just think it's a different story if you understand that there was information all along. They could have found this all along. (laughs) With sonar equipment, they were able to create a three-dimensional image of the entire shipwreck, which they determined was pretty much still intact. Then, in 2016, they hit the jackpot again when they finally found HMS Terror in a place aptly named Terror Bay. Love that. (laughs) That's amazing. Terra Bay. I don't want to go there. <laughs> so they named it Terra Bay in honour of the ship, and the ship was under in Terra Bay the whole time. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh my god. So ironically, Terra the ship was just lying on the seabed in the bay, approximately forty-eight meters under the water. So no doubt ships and maybe even like the search ships back in the day sailed right over the top of Terra in Terra Bay. That's mad. I like that. So the task ahead now of searching these vessels, again, is just no small feat, especially searching in the Arctic. They were only able to return to the site to explore for the first time in 2019 and in 2020, and they had confirmed at that point that they found over 350 new artefacts, and they have plans to do even bigger searches. 
In fact, the biggest search in Canadian history is on the cards for this. That's crazy. So no doubt more answers about this whole thing will come to light in the near future. Definitely gonna have to keep an eye on this now. I know. I want to know. I want to know everything. It's a weird story because it's so old, but it's literally so new. The answers are being revealed currently. So it's somewhat like unfolding in real time, which is why I wanted to tell it. Yeah, it's current. Yeah. How exciting. The big mystery for a lot of people that still remains is the location of Sir John Franklin's body. Where is he? Yeah. John died before the crew abandoned the ships for the land. Of course, yeah. It is expected practice that they would place the captain in his cabin on board his ship. Yeah. And obviously they just found the ship. So are they going to find him? Well, this is the thing. With bones. Or is it in ice? Are we still in ice? Or is it underwater? It's underwater, still in the Arctic. Mm. So you've got to wait for good weather, good timing to go and explore this. Ooh. Again, same issues as before. Yeah. So far, they haven't found him on board Erebus. Or if they have, then they've definitely kept it super under wraps. Yeah. An alternative theory, though, that came from the testimony of Inuit people is that his men buried him on King William Island. Louis Kamuka, an Inuit historian who has spent the last 30 years helping piece together the truth of the Franklin expedition, says that there has been two stories passed down from generation to generation about where John Franklin's final resting place is. One group said they saw a burial for a great chief underground and under a slate stone. Another group spoke of coming across a large wooden structure in the shape of a cross with a flat stone underneath that was hollow. So far, all the bodies discovered from the expedition have been buried on land. So perhaps it's not too far a leap to think Franklin may too still be somewhere on King William's Island. But I guess only time will tell whether we find him or not. Ooh, I want to know. And that is the end. Oh my god, that was exciting. You know, as soon as we finish recording this, I'm going to be like looking this up. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be like, what, what else is there? What now? What now? I want to know. I got so into it when I was researching it. I was like, it's unfolding now? They just got back to search the ships in 2020. Then there was COVID. I bet that didn't help. Yeah. I'm sure they're looking now, probably. Like, yeah. There's going to be people on that mission, like, probably right now, planning, like, what they're going to do, what they're looking for. What will they find? What will they know? (sighs) Did the ships get crushed? Yeah. You know, obviously, one of them looks pretty intact. What other crazy things might have happened? We don't know. Yeah. Is there signs of more cannibalism on board the ships? Yeah. Before they even abandon ship. Yeah. It's quite exciting to have one of the biggest mysteries of the last, you know, two centuries being unraveled, hopefully, now. Nah. So that's what I wanted to share. It's a historic crime with modern day interests. So go research, guys. Go have a look. That was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely doing that. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, right. It's our favorite time of the episode. Yay! It's the burning questions. After that very exciting story. I know, right? Let's discuss some questions. And this is perhaps one of my most excited burning questions for you. Yes. I mean, it's probably my favorite of all time so far. Is it? Okay, good. So we're on the same page. I love this question. Interesting response. (laughs) So my burning question for you, Amy, is... What happens to the body when it is frozen in ice? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I kind of want to discuss a bit from like both sides of this. So firstly, I'm going to talk about why the bodies of those who had died did not decompose. And then I'll touch a bit on what happens if you actually just freeze to death rather than like die and then freeze, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So let's begin with the preservation of the deceased in the ice. So to understand this... I'm going to give a bit of information on the decomposition process that occurs normally on anybody after death. (laughs) My favourite topic. (laughs) It makes me feel weird. (laughs) I actually like to look back on my uh, research project for my master's for this. My research? My research? (laughs) Because that was like a nice little post-mortem study. So I was like, yeah, let's touch base on my research. Oh, yes. I recall the rats and the picture. The mice. The mice, sorry. Little mice. And the files on your phone that no one should ever look I've still got them. And the reason why you had to go on the run for a year, if I recall. (laughs) Shh, let's not bring that up, Freya. Yeah, no, sorry, carry on. Yeah, we don't don't talk about it. (laughs) 
So I'll try and make this as like quick of a summary as possible, but I just find it so interesting. So the stages of decomposition have been described in different ways, but the majority split the process into five different steps. So you have the fresh stage, the bloat stage, the decay stage, the post-decay stage, and then skeletonization. Mmm, nice. Mmm, delightful. But for this, I'll just focus on the first stage of the process because this is sort of the most important bit for what we're talking about. So at the fresh stage, we have the process of autolysis. So this is the chemical breakdown of the cellular structures in the body. So this is caused by the lack of oxygen reaching the cells after death, and it creates a buildup of carbon dioxide. These changes in oxygen and carbon dioxide levels cause a decrease in pH, which causes further damage to the cells by acidity. So basically, you're just breaking down chemically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Keep going. I love hearing about how my acid levels will change when I die. Oh, that's great. Yes. <laughs> Let's continue with what happens next. So alongside this, you'll also have enzymes that will begin to break down the cell membranes. This leads to digestion of your proteins, your carbohydrates and lipids. So your cells are breaking down, there's releasing fluids, and these fluids become nutrients for bacteria and fungi. The bacteria and fungi start like thriving on your breakdown fluids. Circle left. (laughs) Yeah. This then further aids your decomposition process as it initiates putrefaction, which is where the bacteria start working on the tissues of the body. Is this where the smell comes in? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To begin with, when you first die, like you don't really see on the outside changes. But then once the bacteria and everything gets involved, that's when you start seeing like the breakdown of the tissues. Mm, Yeah. So (laughs) let's now touch on what ice does to affect this process. So when a body has died and it is an environment of ice, there are two major factors which halt the decomposition. Firstly, an icy environment is not suitable for the growth of bacteria. Therefore, there are not any present to start the putrefaction stage. So that's why when they like found the bodies, they were still intact because the icy environment actually stops the bacteria from growing. So it stops them from being able to break down your tissues. So that's why, like, you don't see the physical changes. Oh, interesting. And then secondly, the cells in the body become frozen themselves. So this stops them from decaying as well. So it's like all of your components are just, like, frozen in place, basically. Yeah. So if decomposition is halted at this stage, there'll be no obvious external changes to the body, as no visual changes begin until the body reaches the second stage of decomposition, where the body begins to start to show signs of such things as, like, rigor mortis, which we've all heard of, I'm sure. And then it's like then on to the further stage of the third one is when you start to see like green discoloration and bloating. And these are all bits that are caused by the breakdown of soft tissues by bacteria. So yeah, basically, if there's no bacteria, there's no breakdown, no visual changes. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. That's kind of terrifying. But amazing. It's amazing, obviously. It's amazing. Great. So now I'll just touch base a little bit on what happens when you actually freeze to death. Yeah, how does that differ? So let's talk about, so when you're in the cold, that's probably what happened to a lot of them, I imagine, because if they're Mm. in such cold conditions, I imagine a few of them froze to death. Yeah. So when your body temperature begins to drop, your body starts to decide which parts it wants to prioritise, keeping safe. So that normally protects your core of your body, where all your important organs are. So to do this, your body restricts the blood flow to your extremities so this is like why when you start to get really cold your fingers your toes they're like the first thing to get cold yeah because your body goes nope they're not important (laughs) we want to protect our core i'll have you know body (laughs) that i quite like my toes (laughs) i quite like them So yeah, so the blood will be drawn away from your skin. This is what causes the lack of colour. And it begins the process of frostbite, which I'm sure, you know, we've all seen examples of in films. Mm. So we know that eventually the skin will turn blue and black and you won't be able to feel the parts of the bodies anymore. The next stage then is your heart rate, your respiratory rate and your blood pressure will increase and you'll begin to shiver. This is to try and generate heat in your body by your muscles contracting rapidly. Ah. So your body's just trying to make yourself warm again. It's like, I don't want to be cold. Yeah. I don't know why like that seems like groundbreaking to me, but I'm like, that makes sense what a shiver is. <laughs> I've never thought about what a shiver yeah. is. Yeah. It's just like warm, please. Warm. Quick, fast movement. <laughs> Go. Yeah. 
But eventually, hypothermia will fully set in and this will actually cause your heart rate and your respiratory rate to then slow down and you will find it harder to move as the cold settles into your body. At this stage, you will also start to hallucinate because with the heart rate slowing, your body will begin to be deprived of oxygen in areas such as your brain. A strange occurrence when in such cold is where people will strip all their clothes off. Yeah. This is believed to be because of blood vessels near the surface of the skin dilating and causing the intense feeling of heat so that people feel they need to undress to cool down. Eventually, the person will fall unconscious and the heart rate and breathing slow down to such a level the body cannot stay awake. This leads to a total shutdown of the body as the cold reaches the core. This leads to the organs failing and this will lead to death. Once they have died, the process of the decomposition is halted, just as I had spoke about before. Ah. So once they have died, it's like it's the same process. If they're not removed from ice, basically. Yeah. If they stay in the ice, then they aren't going to decompose. If you take them to a warmer area, then they will start to decompose like normal. Yeah. Interesting. Do you know, I had a very weird thought where you were describing what happened. You know, it makes you feel warm. And I was like, I wonder if fire's like the opposite. You know, you get burned alive and then you feel cold. You're like, oh. Ooh. That's such a stupid thought. I like that thought though, but it's fun. (laughs) Sure that that's not true. (laughs) I learned a lot in that. I really did. I hope you did. New information that will scar me, but great. Thank you. I need more (laughs) scarring, so it's fab. You are very welcome. (laughs) So let's move on to your question now. Are you ready? I think so. I think so. Okay. So my question to you is, why do we love an unsolved mystery? Bum, bum, bum. We really do, don't we? We do. So I feel like there's just like an innate part of human curiosity that fuels this love of mysteries. Maybe some of us have more of it than others, but I think there's no denying that there is a trait that unites us all. I mean, seriously, who among us can hear an intriguing story with like no concrete ending and be like, nah, I'm good. I'll never think about that again. Nah, don't bother me. No. There's just some psychological reasons why it's so hard to turn away from the intrigue. We've got to know. And I think as a species, we're just innately curious and we're forever seeking answers to confirm what we think or what we assume or want to know. And that's how we've kind of managed to develop in all areas of our civilization. Oh yeah, definitely. We would never be where we are now if we didn't have the curiosity we do. Yeah, absolutely. It's like in our being. And you see, as much as we're obsessed with unsolved mysteries, I think we equally despise them and their existence too, because they don't fall into our predetermined logic of how the world works. And some even contradict the boundaries of what we know and think is possible. Absolutely. They also sometimes like don't give us the confirmed information that we need to feel satisfied with the outcome. And that leaves us all feeling somewhat frustrated, as if we've been bested. It's almost like things that you know could easily change. Like, what we believe now yeah. in, like, so many years could be completely different. I know, and that's somewhat annoying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the sleuths of the internet kind of, like, take it to the next level. And, like, in fairness, sometimes their perseverance really pays off. So, you know, credit to them where credit is due. Although I would really hate to know the true success rate and how below the minimum <laughs> wage they would be if their time invested was compensated. <laughs> I think at some point they'd like hit negatives and have to start paying to investigate these cases. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we worry about child exploitation in factories across developing nations, but yeah. who cares about the poor conspiracy theorists in the world? Where is the, <laughs> you know, the outcry for them, the donation funds? They spend so much time and you know, yeah, looking into these things. I'm just saying. <laughs> so yeah, in all seriousness though, resolving a mystery is an alluring idea on a deep psychological level because of the many positive emotions and feelings it would offer. For the British Psychology Society, Professor Alan Goldman explains that mysteries really utilise our brains. They require us to use our cognitive abilities to interpret clues, as well as our imagination to identify with these characters or other people. They also engage us emotionally and usually via like excitement or fear, which, you know, sounds to me like the feeling you get when you're on a roller coaster ride, except like this version of adrenaline seeking behaviour and just makes you feel really smart. <laughs> So it's like a bonus. I'm amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And this is another big reason why we love mysteries. To solve one would offer our own self-esteem and the way we view our own intellect a massive boost. Not to mention all the credit and praise we would gain from the wider world. Like, you know, you'd be a hero. That is true. So I like to think mystery lovers and obsessors are perhaps just what like try hard kids grow up to be as we forever want to try and find some validation of our unfulfilled superiority complex. (laughs) Or is that just me? (laughs) I don't know. Um, 
Mimi. Move it up. Don't get. We all want to, you know, show our worth, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Like, pick me, miss, please. Oh, I know the answer. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, and the last point I want to raise about why we love a good mystery is because we are a mystery. Bum, bum, bum. I know, right? Deep. That was wild. <laughs> that was good. You, you know, the world itself is full of these weird conundrums and unexplainable factors, including our own bloody existence, which can be so existential to think about. We are floating on a ball in space, after all. I don't want to be reminded of that. I don't, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to think about that. I like to remind myself that occasionally I just think, put things in perspective. I'm like, I'm on a ball. In space. It's all good. (laughs) So no matter how many mysteries we solve, it looks like the building blocks of our reality is forever going to elude us. And so when your whole existence is a big damn mystery, there's no wonder why we can get a bit hung up on wanting to force everything else that happens to make sense. We might not know where space ends, but we sure as hell should be able to know what happened to a little pageant girl in her own home on Christmas, or who was running around London in 1888 killing and dissecting women, and what exactly happened to those men on their Arctic expedition 177 years ago. I would like to know that. But I guess that's just not how the world works, so for now, we've got to keep digging and hoping that the truth isn't buried yet. And that's why we love a mystery. (gasps) Nice. I liked that. That was good. Thank you. Mic drop. (laughs) Mic drop. I had to go in with some puns, but part of me feels like I should have gone for something more (laughs) ice-based. You've you've had enough of those, right? I think think you've done that. I know, but I'm just looking at it. Digging and buried. That's classic true crime. I could do better. (laughs) I could do better. I want more. I've had a few good ones today, though. I'll give myself that. Right, so to wrap up episode seven, we like to end on a little nice note to, you know, get upbeat and happy and forget that we're on a spin ball in the middle of space. So <laughs> Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. My my nice note is just that this is all I've almost been a homeowner for a year now and I've taken on a few different projects and trying to get myself a bit more confident at like basic and like handy tasks and stuff and I found I really enjoy electrics I think it's like the risk high risk high reward Uh... thing I think it's like quite (laughs) inciting I was gonna say I don't feel like it's safe for you to do that right You're so accident prone. I know. I can't. But it's so fun. It's like a big puzzle. It's like, which wire goes into which wire? <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. I really love it. You're like, dee, dee, dee. <laughs> it's just, makes me happy. As long as it makes you happy. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, have you got a nice note now, Amy? It's one of those where I'm trying to think of if I've said about it before, but I don't think I have. And if I have, they can have it again. <laughs> well, it's been a while. No one knows what you've been up to this year because yeah. you were, you know, in hiding. So <laughs> any, <laughs> any sort of like information you want to share with the public? My nice note, I think, is going to be I really have started to find that I enjoy cross-stitching. Ooh. It's a little hobby I've got now. It's really enjoyable. It's nice. You can just sit down. I can put something on the TV and I can just sit there and cross stitch. And then by the end of it is a nice finished project. It's amazing. What have you made so far? I've made a little cow one. Oh. I've made a Christmas one. And my biggest one is my one friend. She had a baby. So I made her like this really big one that has like the baby's name, date of birth. And then like on the middle, it's got like a sloth with a little baby sloth on it. And it's really cute. Oh, that's so sweet. When I gave it to her, she was really happy with it. And that just brought me so much joy. Yeah. It was so nice. That's such a lovely present. And it's something that the baby will be able to keep when they're older as well. It's like exactly. a keepsake, which I always think is the nicest gift. Yeah. But then she said to me, she was like, you do realize if I have another one, you've got to make another one. I was like, oh damn <laughs> oh no the demand is on now amy it took me so long oh no well get started now you never know she's gonna turn it around any time i know yeah <laughs> get going exactly but yeah so i think that's my nice note that's a great nice note yeah everyone's happy today so happy what a good time <laughs> right well before we say goodbye for this episode amy do you want to tease the theme of episode eight i can i can indeed so next episode is going to be mine and all i'm going to say is train robbery mm. that is the theme so do with that what you will people that's it come back next week find out more <laughs> That's it. Enticing. Good. Check. Done. Until then, have a killer week. Bye. Bye.